If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Nehemiah chapter 13. Book of Nehemiah chapter 13. We're coming to the end of our study, the book of Nehemiah. And for those of you who were with us last Sunday, I hope this doesn't trigger a case of whiplash. Last week we looked at cosmic personalism and cosmic ownership, and we're now coming back uh, to Nehemiah. What we've seen up to this point had to do with the first term, in quotation marks, of Nehemiah as governor in Judah. The story begins with him being back in uh, the capital of the Persian Empire because he was uh, the cupbearer to the king. He hears about the terrible things that have happened to Jerusalem, how it is in ruins. He asks for permission, and, or the king asks him, what do you want to do? And he goes back and he begins a rather audacious project. And within 52 days, they fill in the gaps in the wall, put in new gates, and the city is now, uh, I think, easier to defend. In the midst of this, there are two different problems that arise. One is external opposition, which takes various forms. Uh, and as we saw, he's surrounded. He has Sanballat, uh, the Horonite, who's up in Samaria. And he has Tobiah, the Ammonite, who is in the east. And in the south, you have the Arabs. And then to the west, you have the people from Ashdod. Uh, Geshem, by the way, the Arab is sort of the leader of the, the faction to the south. But that's not the only problem. Within the, sit, within the population itself, there is a problem in that the poor are being oppressed. Uh, people are loaning money uh, at uh, interest, which they should not do. And they're actually purchasing, they are buying the children of the poor to pay off debts. Nehemiah begins reforms. And after, that's, that's done in the midst of this, but after the wall is finished, then you have Ezra, who is brought out to read the book of the law. And the Levites give the understanding of what is being said. The people pray a prayer of confession. And as we are singing today, Come Thou Fount, I notice that you know, oftentimes we think that confession is just saying how bad we are. But their confession was surrounded by praise of God for who he is. And the hymn is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I mean, we sing of God's grace, and in the midst of his grace, we, we, we freely admit that we have sinned against him. They renew the covenant with God. Lots are cast to see who will repopulate the city of Jerusalem, and the wall of Jerusalem is dedicated. One last thing that happens before Nehemiah leaves is that an administrative system is put in place to take care of the temple system. The Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, they need to be paid. And so a system is put in place to take care of this. And Nehemiah then returns back to King Artaxerxes. After 12 years of being in Judah as the governor, he now returns back. Um, We don't know how long he was gone, but I don't think it was that long. Maybe a few years. Um, And in his absence we see that corruption has, in fact, developed, as well as abuse. There is laxity, or if you wish, a neglect of the priests. There's a neglect of tithes, a neglect of the Sabbath, and there's intermarriage with foreign women. Malachi denounces these, and Malachi lived at the same time as Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah comes back, and he institutes here in this last chapter a series of reforms. 
Nehemiah chapter 13 is the second term of Nehemiah as the governor of Judah. Before we look at this, though, I I want to point out two things before we get to the reforms. It's not as though things were always bad or the people were not doing what they were supposed to do. First of all, the generosity of the Jews should not be questioned. And we sort of glossed over this uh, when we went through chapter 7. At the end of it, we have the list of the exiles, all the names that are given, and we didn't go through that. But at the end, we see that some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 100 drachmas, that's 19 pounds of gold. 50 bulls and 530 garments for priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 drachmas, that's 375 pounds of gold, and 2,200 minas, that is 1.2 metric tons of silver. The total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 drachmas of gold, 2,000 minas, that's 1.1 metric ton of silver, and 67 garments for the priests. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. So I think we can agree that the Jews were generous toward the temple system. But as we will see, something happened and things began to go south. And then secondly, here at the beginning of chapter 13, the Jews had seen that in fact certain people were to be excluded. If you look at the first three verses of Nehemiah 13, On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Parenthesis, our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Again, this is not some arbitrary action, and this isn't a case of xenophobia, a fear of foreigners. This is something they learned as they read the book of the law of God, the law of Moses. And I think the chapter inserts this because what we will see in the first reform and the last reform that needs to take place is people had gone away from this particular thinking. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, Moses tells the people, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor and Aram Naharim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So it's pretty clear. Now, one of the problems we face as we continue in chapter 13 is a chronology. What does it mean in verse number one, on that day? Is it referring to the day that Ezra read the book of the law and then people said, oh, that's what God says, so we need to do this? Um, it has been suggested that, in fact, there was a regular reading of the book of the law that every Sabbath when the people will gather, uh, part of the law would be read. And on a particular Sabbath, this passage came up and people are like, well, we need to do this, we need to take care of this and exclude anyone who is an Ammonite or Moabite. If it refers to when Ezra read the law, when did they do this? When did they exclude people? So let me just confess at the beginning that the chronology is, is somewhat mysterious to me. Now we come to the first of three reforms that Nehemiah in his second term 
uh, puts into place. Look at verse number four. Before this, so again, it, in terms of chronology, when it, before before what? Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Tobiah is the Ammonite, and he had provided him with a large room. Verse six. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Uh, A solution to what I mentioned in terms of the chronology is that it's not talking about Ezra when he read the law, but at some other time. On one of the Sabbaths, this came up and people said, yeah, we need to put these people out. But Eliashib the priest, in fact, did not do this. Eliashib, who was the priest, was very close, and some people suggest even related to Tobiah, and he had given him a large room on the temple grounds. This is the temple, one of the rooms. Well, if you look at it, uh, verse 5. A large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So the room that had been set apart for the things of God, the ties to take care of the people who worked in the temple and the temple system. Suddenly, these things, well, I think a lot of it had been moved away or had been taken, and this room is now provided for an Ammonite. Uh, this is unacceptable. I mean, according to the law, he's not even allowed to be a part of the congregation of Israel, and here he is living on the temple grounds. Any other Jew could not live on the temple grounds. And here you have an Ammonite who is living there. Verse number 7, Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem. And all this that was going on had happened while he was away. He knew nothing about this. So I said, we don't know how long he was gone. And we don't know how, you know, what the king said. You You can go back or go and visit. We simply don't know what happened. What we do know is when he got back, he was outraged at what he saw, that Tobiah was provided a room in the courts of the temple. Eliashib is the one who had provided this. Eliashib is a very common name in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, The high priest was named Eliashib. If you go back to chapter 3 when they're building the walls, you have at least two individuals who are working on the wall named Eliashib. So... All we know about this man is he is the priest. I don't think it's the high priest. Because this position, I think, would be sort of a step down to sort of take care of, you know, administrative things. This is another priest. And it is this man who allows this to happen. I do think, however, that the high priest knew about this. How could he not know? And he gave his tacit approval. Tobiah, we've read about throughout the book of Nehemiah. He is an ally of Sanballat. Um, but he also has connections with other people in Judah. In chapter 6, we say, we see also in those days the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara. So he's actually married to a woman who is Jewish. And his son-in-law, Jehohanan, had married the daughter-in-law of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. So he is married to a Jew, his son is married to a Jew. So they are related, uh, I would say, to powerful families, to high families uh, that live in Judah. 
And we read of Elisha that he was closely connected to Tobiah. But none of this, none of this allows him to have a room in the temple grounds. None of this makes it okay. The Ammonites are not allowed to be in the congregation, certainly not allowed to live on the temple grounds. By the way, non-Jews eventually would be allowed into what is known as the court of the Gentiles. That is not the inner court where Jews could go, but they could say on the outside. And it is worth noting that uh, during the time of Jesus, this is the second temple, this is where Herod had really built the temple up, there were warning signs in Greek and Latin warning Gentiles that they could not go any further, they could not come any closer to the temple. And the warning said the penalty for this was death. And fascinatingly enough, the Romans permitted Jewish authorities to carry out the death penalty for anyone who broke this, including Roman citizens. That's how serious this was. The Gentiles are to stay out, and yet Tobiah is living on the temple grounds. So what does Nehemiah do? Verse number 7. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment, the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. See, Nehemiah sees this as evil. It's not sort of a lapse in judgment. It's not just simply a bad thing. It was evil. It went against God's command. It was wrong. So he threw out all of Tobiah's household gold, some trans- goods, some say furniture. Uh, so it seems that he had been quite comfortable there and had really sort of settled in to this room there. He ordered the rooms purified. You may remember that in chapter 12, that when they dedicated the wall, the Levites purified themselves, the people, and the wall. And we talked about that, how that, yeah, purifying a wall doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Well, here it does make sense that part of the temple, which has been desecrated, which has been contaminated uh, by an Ammonite, needs to be purified. And that's what they do. I I think the best way for us to get our minds around this, because I think we just don't think in terms of purifying rooms, is think of being in an operating room that a surgery is going to happen, you want the room to be clean, no germs. Well, this is the house of God. And our very presence contaminates it, but it has been contaminated by the presence of Tobiah and it needs to be purified. And then the things that belong in the room, not Tobiah, but the things of God and the offerings and everything, they are brought back into the room. But there's more. If you look at verse number 10, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. We saw at the end of chapter 12 that, in fact, they were being provided for. Even though they had homes, they had farms outside of Jerusalem, they stayed in Jerusalem, there they were paid so that they could do the service of God. At the end of chapter 12, Nehemiah actually sets up an administrative system. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. 
from the fields all around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as also did the singers and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. Well, you know what? This isn't happening anymore. Nehemiah, I don't think, has been gone that long. He set a system in place. He goes back to Persia. He comes and people aren't being taken care of. As I said, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I mean, something is set in place. People vow we are going to take care of the Levites, and then, and then they don't. Um, the people ceased to give their tithes for one reason or another. Um, either they didn't want to. I can't afford to. They didn't. Uh, they could not afford it. Or, if I'm a Jew at that time, I don't want to give my tithes if it's going to be put in a room where Tobiah is. Why would I? For all I know, he is dipping into the till. He is taking that which I have set aside for the Levites. The Levites and the singers have to live. They have to feed their families. So they go back home. They work the farms so that they can earn a living. Verse 11, so I rebuke the officials and ask them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the son of the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zachor, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. I find it fascinating that Nehemiah says, why is the house of God neglected? I think we would have preferred if he had said, why are the servants of God neglected? The Levites, the singers. Well, it's the same thing. The house of God consists of the people of God and temple worship cannot happen as it should if these people aren't taken care of. And so the people do give their tithes, and trustworthy men are put in charge, which makes me begin to think even more strongly that something shady was going on previously when Tobiah was there. Uh, And why would I give my tithe if, in fact, it might be stolen by someone? Judah brings in the tithes. New administrators are put in place, and they are made responsible. Now we come to the first of four prayers. There's actually three where Nehemiah prays with regard to himself, but four prayers here in chapter 13. And I would point out, by the way, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, is Nehemiah praying. Now we come to chapter 13, we find Nehemiah praying. The book ends. This is who this man is, a man of prayer. But his prayers in chapter 13, I think many modern Christians find rather disconcerting. Look at verse number 14. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done 
for the house of my God and its services. It's the first of three prayers that Nehemiah asked God to remember him and his service. There's a fourth prayer in verse number 29 in which he asked God to remember the sins of those who have abused, who have intermarried with pagan peoples. We're going to look at each of the three prayers, but today I sort of want to set the foundation and what's going on here and why this is important. If you look at the end, by the way, of Nehemiah, it is a prayer. The last sentence in this book is a prayer in which he asks God to remember. Remember me with favor, oh my God. Now let me ask you, would you pray this? Would you pray, God, remember all the good things I've done? God, remember me with favor? I think we might see this as inappropriate, as rather self-centered, self-serving, seems to lack a certain humility, uh, sort of, it's all about me. As in, remember me for what a wonderful person I am. As though he's patting himself on the back and asking God to do the same. I don't think that's what's going on. But let's consider this prayer, and I think this will apply to the others. Let's begin with the word remember. In Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1, we also find the request for God to remember. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. In the series that we finished recently on a theology of memory, we saw that God's memory is quite different from human memory, in that it is, in fact, not a neurological act. It isn't that so God recalls something that's in his brain and he brings it back out to the forefront. But it's also because God's memory is accurate. It is alive. It holds us as we actually are. Not as we think we think we are, but as we actually are. David says at the beginning of Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. This is God's memory of us. God's memory is not the same as ours because it is not, He does not have a past, present, or future. He exists outside of time. So in a real sense, there is no past to be recalled. No future to move toward. God's memory of us is God moving toward us and God sustaining us. He acts toward us and he sustains us. To be remembered by God is to be sustained by God. And to be remembered by God is to be the recipient of divine action. Simply put, when God remembers, God acts. And to be remembered is to exist and to be sustained by God. You might say, okay, yeah, I remember the series. We went through the whole memory thing. Why does Nehemiah tell God to remember what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services? Is Nehemiah sort of aiming for some brownie points of some kind, some extra credit, a jewel in his crown, if you wish, in heaven? Is Nehemiah telling God something he doesn't know? Is what Nehemiah did not worthy of remembering, so he has to remind God, oh, remember that thing I did? Because otherwise God would not remember. I would answer in three parts. First of all, let's start with the question of telling God something he does not know. 
or something he might in fact forget. The reality is God knows everything and prayer is not, let's be clear about this, prayer is not telling God something he does not know. This means in reality our prayers are telling God something he's already told us. We are simply playing back to him something he already knows and far better than we do. So if you take any aspect of prayer, when you praise God for who he is, God knows who he is far better than we do. When you confess your sins, trust me, God knows your sins far better than you could ever imagine. And when we ask for something, Jesus is quite clear, God knows even before you ask what you have need of. So prayer is never a case of telling God something he does not know. God knows all of If anything, I think prayer is reminding us of things we have forgotten. We may have forgotten who God is and what he has done for us. We may have forgotten, in fact, our sins. And we may have forgotten that God gives us our daily bread. And so in praying, it is not to remind God, it is, in fact, to remind ourselves. The second part of the answer is, we need to ask ourselves, are our actions morally neutral? Are any of our actions morally neutral? And the answer is no. We either act in obedience or we act in disobedience. There is no moral or ethical Switzerland, if you wish. It's as simple as that. And we may not like this. We may push back because it's so binary. It's so black and white. But this is the way it is. We live in a moral universe. Our actions are either acts of obedience or acts of disobedience. And the third thing, the third part is we need to ask ourselves, do we want God to be neutral with regard to our actions? I remember some years ago, I just went through a phase when I found myself bothered uh, whenever people would always seem to be asking God to bless them. In their prayers, it seemed to be something that kept coming up that they wanted to be blessed. And setting aside what they meant by that, I think that might have been what bothered me as much, but I was gently reminded by someone in the congregation that God either blesses us or he curses us. There's no middle ground. So, God will either bless you or he will curse you. Which one do you want? There's no neutral response from God. There's no neutral action from God. Now, if you put these things together, then we begin to see that God's remembering is God's acting toward us with favor and sustaining us by grace. Our prayers do not have the function of informing God. Our actions are not morally or ethically neutral. And God's acts of remembering are not neutral. So should we not, as Nehemiah did, at the end of the day, literally and and figuratively, lay before God what we have done and ask him to look on what we have done with favor. At the end of a day, or a week, a month, a year, at the end of a project, should we not say to God, our Father, remember what I have done. 
At the same time, and in the same prayer, when it comes to confessing our sins, we may say to the Father, Remember not my transgressions. Remember these things, but please do not remember my sins. And then hear the words from Isaiah 43, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. I think we might be a bit harsh, a bit harsh on Nehemiah, because it sounds to our ears like it's all about him. And in fact, it's quite the reverse. He acknowledges that it is God who is the source of all action and sustenance and grace. So he says to God, remember, that is act toward me. And then he lays out before God what he has done. And God either blesses us or he curses us. See, I think most of our lives, most of what we do in our lives, we don't think fall into either category. We don't want God to curse us for what we've done, but bless us, that seems a bit much. But it's either or. It's either or. By the way, the passage from Isaiah 43, remembers your sins no more. The Lord continues, review the past for me. At the end of the day, review what it is that you have done. And we can lay it before God, the things that by his grace we have tried to accomplish and where we have failed miserably and know that God will do what is best. In studying this passage, several things jumped out at me. First of all was how quickly the Jews went back on their, on their word and on their vows. Their generosity is quite clear at the end of chapter 7. At the beginning of chapter 13, their exclusion of the enemies of God, it's there. And yet, rather quickly, they go back on what they had promised. We don't know how long Nehemiah was gone. It couldn't have been that long. And yet they turned away, away from what they, as a people, had promised. I'm also struck by how quickly Nehemiah responds. It shouldn't surprise us. This has always been the way that Nehemiah has acted. But then thirdly is Nehemiah's prayer. We are not told, but I see this as a private prayer. I don't see Nehemiah getting up on a pulpit somewhere, a platform, and saying, Remember me, Lord, you know, where everyone can hear him. This is something, I think, taken from his private memoirs. As he prays to God, we have his private prayer in chapter 1. Now we have these prayers here in chapter 13. And as foreign as it may sound to us, I think he prays exactly right in a pattern that we should follow. I would remind you of the parable of the talents. By the way, toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Do you remember the parable of the talents? Each servant is given a different number of talents. And what does the master say to those who have done well? Well done, good and faithful servant. Are these not words we long to hear? Are we just sort of holding out till the end of time when we stand before God in judgment? I think at the end of a project, at the end of the day, at any point in the day, we can lay before God and say, by your grace, this is what I've tried to do. And part of it, I've, I've failed miserably. I've sinned against you, either by omission or commission. Don't remember that part. But these things, by your grace that I've done, do remember them.
As Nehemiah prays, remember me with favor, O Lord. And may that be our prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I fear that sometimes we are afflicted by sort of a faux humility. Like, oh no, I, I don't want to pray about myself. I don't want to bring up what I have done before God. If not to you, then whom will we speak about these things? And the reality is the gifts you have given us, the abilities we have, they come from you. It's not as though we did these things on our own. There is a place for true humility, but there's also a place for worship and thanksgiving and acknowledging by your grace what we've been able to do and to ask for your sustenance in the midst of things that what we have done would continue wouldn't simply fade away it may in time it probably will but in the time that we are here that what we have done by your grace would remain that it would be your work we wouldn't see it simply as our own May we be reminded, in case we forget, how quickly we can turn from you, how quickly we forget to say thank you, how quickly we begin to think that we are self-sufficient. Remember us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.